when we talk to our teams, we start a lot of meetings with a patient story. Because we have to keep reminding each other that, yes, there's a business part of what we do. The books have to be kept. Finances have to be in order. Money has to be collected. But at the end of the day, the product, if you will, is a service to someone who is probably having the worst day of their lives. And our job is to make that day a little less difficult for them. Because every day, my system is impacting somebody's life. Welcome to Moments Move Us, a people-first podcast unlocking the power of meaningful moments by bringing you stories that inspire. I'm your host, Rebecca Corin. Today's guest has dedicated his life to making a difference in the healthcare industry. Please join me in welcoming Marvin O'Quinn, President and COO at Common Spirit Health. In our conversation today, you'll hear one word continually mentioned, human kindness. It's all about going above and beyond the traditional bounds of healthcare and treating patients with genuine empathy. Marvin firmly believes that leadership is about respecting and empathizing with people, whether it's people on your team or the patients that you serve. When you lead with kindness, you create an environment that inspires and motivates everyone to work towards a shared vision. Additionally, you'll learn how leadership plays a pivotal role in creating equitable access to healthcare services and how the COVID pandemic has made a massive impact on the entire industry to that end. Listen in as Marvin shares practical solutions to address the shortage of workers and ensure quality care for all. This conversation is sure to make you think and even may make you challenge your perspective. Let's dive in. Let's jump right in today on Moments Move Us. Marvin, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining. It's my pleasure. Happy to be here. Let's start today by talking a little bit about your journey and how you became who you are today, both president of Common Spirit, but also who you are as a person. So I don't know if you want to start maybe, but where you grew up and some of those moments that led you here. Oh, certainly. Most people, when they ask me, where did you grow up? I talk about growing up in the inner city of Los Angeles. But in reality, I was actually born in Memphis, Tennessee. And I lived in a small town outside of Memphis, Tennessee, actually in Arkansas, in the Delta. And the town was called Crawfordsville, Arkansas. Not a town that was growing. I guess you would call it the segregated South. The black population literally lived on one side yeah. of the track and the white population lived on the other side of the track. We had separate schools, separate libraries, separate everything. I started in that environment. A lot of black families, there was a large migration out of the South to seek a better life for their children and for their families. And so my initial impressions of life were pretty difficult. I did everything, pick cotton, chop cotton, pick fruits. We did what you had to do to survive. And I suppose I learned from that the willingness to really work hard because you had to if you wanted to scratch out a decent life for your family. But we migrated. Now, a lot of folks at that point in time were leaving Arkansas and Tennessee. My family migrated to Los Angeles, driven by the large boom in the aircraft industry in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And both of my parents, my mother and stepfather, were ended up working on constructing airplanes. We moved into the inner city of Los Angeles, 
where I instantly I had a deep South accent to the extent that most people couldn't understand a word I was saying, which you might imagine resulted in some, shall we say, not so nice things being said about me at the time. Yes. But I had to learn to adjust. And I did. And I got on the sports. I played basketball. I actually essentially ran track. And it was a very difficult community. Lots of gang activity and all that stuff. But as an athlete, you know, I was kind of protected, if you will, from the gangs because they like to see the athletes and be a part of that type of thing. There was one teacher there who took an interest in me for whatever reason. I don't know why. She liked me. She made sure I came to class. I didn't go to class. She came looking for me. And uh, she got me enrolled in a summer program at UCLA, where I actually had to go and live on campus there the entire summer. Now, I'd been two places in my life, the Deep South and inner city LA. So now I'm living in Brentwood on the UCLA campus. I've never seen anything quite so beautiful. It opened my eyes, if you will, that there is another world. And that was the beginning of my journey out of the inner city. So when I came back after being there for the summer, I had a sense of what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to college, a larger education, and be able to determine my own destiny, if you will. And so for phase two, what kind of came into play for you, Marvin? What was next after you sort of got to see Brentwood and college and got a taste for what maybe could be? Because I went to the summer program at UCLA, I had the opportunity and an advantage in getting into UCLA. And so that same teacher who had set me up with that program, encouraged me to apply. I did. I got accepted and I moved to the campus after my senior year and began the journey of what am I going to do now? I'm here. What am I going to major in? And I got to make new friends. I was fortunate that well, a couple of my high school buddies also came along. So I wasn't like all by myself, but I did get a job that summer working in a hospital. We call it Big County or what is really known as LAC USC Medical Center. And I worked in the emergency room there over the summer and uh, really got a taste of what a hospital was like. You know, I worked as a transporter out of the emergency room. And that is kind of what whet my appetite, if you will, for wanting to work in healthcare. Because I saw there people working really hard to take care of some people who were without a lot of income, really in a lot of distress, and serving the community like the one that I grew up in. On a Thursday night, the emergency room got full and it stayed full until Monday morning. And that's where I first really thought, this is something I could do. But I didn't know how to do it, but I knew it was something I wanted to be close to. What did you like about it in that environment was started to create a calling for you? A couple of things. One, I could see in a lot of the faces in the emergency rooms, the same sort of despair and loneliness and grief that I saw in the community that I grew up in. These were my people, if you will. And I'm here with an institution that was serving them and seemed to be happy and willing and glad to serve them. And so that made me think maybe there's something I could do that could help my community. And so that was part of it. The other part of it is really exciting. I'm growing up in a very small town. You really don't see much past your block or your high school. Anything beyond that's another world to you. And so here I am seeing a completely new world and experiencing and interacting with people that I'd never thought I'd or even dreamed I'd be able to interact with, most of whom were white. 99% of the people who lived in my community were black. And so my experiences outside of 
African-Americans was very limited. And, but once I got to UCLA, like the whole of the world comes up, but these were all college students about my age. So now I'm working in this hospital where all these folks, there are adults, and I'm like 19 years old, and they're treating me just like another person, not something that I was accustomed to. And so I enjoyed it. I liked the excitement of it. It was a huge complex with lots of working parts. And people show you stuff and teach you things. And I just found it really exciting to be there. Now we're getting to phase three, I feel like. So now you've had some experience in a hospital. You considered being a doc, but now you're going a different direction. What happens next, Marvin? Most of my friends around me were either in dental school or medical school. And back then, people were leaving to go off to one of those academic endeavors after the junior year. As a senior at UCLA, I suddenly found myself pretty much alone. Most of my friends had left. And I started to drift a little bit. I was lonely for people who I missed, had been with for three, four, six years, including the guys who came with me from high school. I transferred up to uh, the University of Washington to finish off my degree to get in-state residency because I figured I'd go to grad school. And I met some folks up there. I continued my studies in biology. So I was a molecular biology major. A friend of mine, we were talking about next steps. I was thinking about going to pharmacy school. And a friend of mine said, why don't you look at health care administration? Because I knew I wanted to stay close in the healthcare because of my environment, what had happened that first summer at UCLA and at LAC USC Medical Center. So I looked into it and I liked what I saw. I applied, I got accepted, and I got into grad school at the University of Washington in Seattle. I completed a two-year program, did a summer fellowship at Harborview Medical Center, which is a big county hospital, very similar to LAC USC Medical mm-hmm. Center. When I graduated, they hired me. I came on as their director of planning. So now you're the director of planning, you're in a hospital, you're working. We can fast forward a few years and all of a sudden you're president and running major health systems. What did it take to get there? I think the simplest answer to that was a willingness to take on any project and a desire to be on top. So once I got inside the hospital and understood the hierarchy in terms of the titles and who does what and how all things go up to a pyramid to one person sitting on top. I wanted to be that person sitting on top. I figured out what the route was to get there. And I started taking on projects and work that would ultimately get me there. Even today, when I speak to young students or other interns or folks who are looking for thoughts or advice on stuff, I always tell them, take every project. Even if you don't know anything about it, tell them you do. Particularly now, I didn't have the internet then. If I didn't know something, I had to go to the library and look it up. But I took every project that was thrown in my direction. Someone said, anyone knows something about this? My hand went up. And so I just made myself indispensable, if you will, to the organization. And then I started looking at job opportunities that were going to take me in the direction I wanted to go. So I spent my first 10 years in strategy, but I knew I needed to get into operations if I wanted to be a CEO. The first opportunity, I got in operations. Now, as a strategist, I had been developing programs, but strategists aren't supposed to run them. They're supposed to develop them and turn them over to operations. 
But there were a lot of programs that I developed that the operators didn't want because they didn't see them as being significant enough. So I raised my hand and said, I'll run. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got experience actually running departments and programs. When I had the opportunity to go into operations, I already had a sense of how to manage people. Mm-hmm. And so I took over a big operation at the Legacy Manual Hospital in Portland. And after that, I just went from there into various CEO roles. So it takes a lot of courage and hunger to be able to be like, I see how this whole thing works. I see the pyramid. I want to be that guy at the top. I want to be that person. And then basically jumping in and saying, oh, I got that. I can do that project. Hand goes up. You may know barely anything about it. You're like, I'll find out. I will find the answer. There are a lot of young leaders and aspiring leaders that listen to this show. Can you talk a little bit about the courage to be able to step forward, raise your hand in a moment when maybe you might feel a little out of place, or maybe you feel like you're not sure if you can definitely 100% do that job. What does it take and what can you lean on to get inspired to get there? For me, it was fear. I didn't want to live the way my parents had lived. I didn't want to have my life determined by circumstances around me. I wanted to control my own destiny. I always had this inner turmoil that's still there today. That is, I'm not quite good enough. Mm-hmm. And so I got to work harder. I got to be in earlier. I got to stay later or I'm not going to make it. And I'll end up back living in the inner city with nothing to account for in terms of my life. And I didn't want that. And so that fear is what has driven me. And even to this day, it still drives me, even though I've had some success. I always feel like I'm just not quite good enough. I don't know if this is exactly how you feel, but I know that Mark Cuban has been very vocal talking about imposter syndrome and how every single shark on Shark Tank feels imposter syndrome even now. (laughs) And and so I think when people hear you say something like that, like it's fear-based, I think that's a real eye-opener because we all have that feeling of like, I'm not good enough or I'm afraid that I'm not going to be able to get there. And that fear can motivate us, but it can also make us run away. It's like the fight or flight. (laughs) I also feel like some of it might be this inner feeling that you started to take on when you were younger. And I think about the story you shared about working in the emergency department and seeing your community and really wanting to serve them. And I wonder, does it go back to that too, like serving your mission? Because you've talked a lot about serving mission-driven organizations, how important that is to you giving back to your community. Is that part of it too? It is. If you look at the institutions in which I work for, this is my second team with a Catholic organization. And then I've worked at large university hospitals that served the inner city. And I've worked at inner city hospitals. I would say only for a brief period in my life, I've actually worked in a suburban hospital that didn't serve the population that I'm talking that looks like me and has the same issues as my family had. As I look back, I think, did I choose that? Or did it choose me? But it sure happened. I don't know the answer to the question, really. It just happened, and I feel good about it. I can say that I didn't run away from my community. Maybe through some part of what I've done, I've been able to make some people's lives a little bit easier in the community that I grew up in. And so now at Common Spirit, let's talk a little bit about that, because you lead 
a huge organization that is serving so many communities. Your organization has grown exponentially recently. But can you talk a little bit about how this fuels you now and culture at your organization and how you set the tone for people to be able to grow like this, like in ways that you have over your career? Our singular purpose is to serve the common good. And that's written into many of our statements that you'll see in our office buildings. And we have hospitals all over the country, and a large proportion of them are in the communities that look like communities that I grew up in. Now, that doesn't mean they're all Black or Afro-American, but they are marginalized communities. That whereas if we weren't there, these folks would not have access to health care. And that's what our company is all about. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have hospitals in growing commercial areas. We do. But we use the resources that are generated in those communities to help support those communities that don't have those kind of resources. And that's our basic business model. And I suppose it's not just the fact that we're serving these disadvantaged communities. At some point in everyone's life, health becomes an issue. When we talk to our teams, we start a lot of meetings with a patient story. Because we have to keep reminding each other that, yes, there's a business part of what we do. The books have to be kept. Finances have to be in order. Money has to be collected. But at the end of the day, the product, if you will, is a service to someone who is probably having the worst day of their lives. And our job is to make that day a little less difficult for them. Because every day, my system is impacting somebody's life. And it could be negative, it could be positive, depending upon circumstances. And we can't control all those circumstances because some of these diseases that people get are unrelenting and there are no answers many times. So the only answer is how you take care of people. That is so true. I'm the daughter of a parent that suffers from chronic illness. And over the years, I had experiences where we got bad news, but the way that it was delivered, how people sat with us and talked to us made a huge impact in how we were able to move forward and be able to continue on. And even though maybe it was one of the worst days that we had, it didn't crush us in the way that it would have in other experiences. Maybe things were not going that poorly, but we weren't necessarily treated with that type of human kindness. And then our experience was totally the opposite. So it's not about the prognosis or the outcome in so many instances. It really, truly is about that human touch, like you were sharing, that relationship. You know, most people who work in the healthcare field, we're not in a position to judge technical quality of a doctor or of a nurse, you presume that they are qualified because of their credential. But what you can judge is how they treat you, what level of empathy they may or may not have. Do they see you as a human being or do they see you as just another person going through the mill? And what we're trying to do in that whole issue of hello, human kindness, who we are, is about empathy and treating people with respect as you would treat your own family member if they were inside of one of your institutions. And you just mentioned hello, human kindness. And I just absolutely <laughs> love that yeah. phrase. And you are yeah. sharing with me how important that promise is that you make to the communities that you serve. 
like you said, we're impacting at least one person right now. I'm sure you're impacting thousands of people right this moment. Can you share a little bit about Hello Human Kindness and how you're able to get that to really fuel people across a system with thousands and thousands of healthcare workers? Sure. So the whole idea is Hello Human Kindness is a promise. The promise is that when you come to one of our institutions, the interactions that you're going to have are going to be empathetic. We're going to treat you as a human being. We're going to put your needs first. We're going to try to maintain your dignity. We're going to treat your family with respect in the same way that we treat you. And we're going to treat you as if you were a member of the family. It's not just healthcare you're getting from us. What you're going to get from us is kindness. Because we believe that how you connect with an individual also can have a powerful impact on how they receive care and how they recover from their care. And we think that encompasses what we're trying to do. We're a big organization. And do we always get it right? We do not. But we're striving for that. And we're not letting perfection get in the way of the good, as people say. It is a journey. And each day we want to get a little bit better and a little bit better. You've talked a lot about how we treat people. And I know as a leader, this is something that you've talked with me about before, about how you saw leadership from a lens of how people were treated and how that kind of impacted the way that you lead now and over time. Can you talk a little bit about leadership and maybe even how the promise, Hello Human Kindness, might play out when thinking about your own teams and your leaders and you? as leading the whole organization? Leadership and how you lead and how you interact with people, how you treat people. For me, it's I want to treat people the way I would like to be treated. And we're dealing with people, particularly in healthcare, almost everybody's a knowledge worker. The nurses have PhDs and master's degrees and bachelor's degrees. Pharmacists go to school longer than I go to school to become a hospital manager. We're talking about people who have trained and they are here because they want to be here. They could have done anything. Yeah. And I just believe that the best way to motivate people and to really galvanize them is through a vision of where you're trying to move the organization and treating people with the proper amount of respect and empathy. Every individual who works for me has something going on in their life outside of the job that affects how they come to the job. Uh, and if I ignore that, then I'm ignoring a big part of that person's life and what makes them what they are. And I've always thought that the best way to do that is just to try to connect with each of my leaders. Over the years, I've worked for a lot of different types of leaders, as you might imagine. I've seen what I thought was really good leadership skills. I've seen people in CEO jobs who, frankly, should not have been there. Or they might have been a good CEO in the 1920s. But that's a different style than for what it takes to run an organization today. I've experienced what I think was leadership style that I wouldn't want to. I've been treated in a way that I wouldn't want to treat someone else by some of the people I've worked for. I learned from that. So I've learned as much from the great leaders as I've had from these other leaders who had different styles. And I learned from one group how I wanted to react and wanted to lead. And from the other group, I learned how I didn't want to yep. make people feel. I've incorporated all of that into my leadership style in terms of how I approach people. I manage other executives. They know their jobs. I don't need to do their jobs for them. 
I need to make it possible for them to do their jobs. And our human kindness aspect is, I think you rightly guess, it's not just for the patients. It's also about how we treat each other inside the organization. And it begins with the supposition that you have to believe that everybody has good intentions. And they may make a bad decision. They may go in the wrong direction. They may make a mistake, but they're making that out of an effort to make things happen, to make a positive impact. And you should treat it that way and help people get back on track if they're lost. Can you share an example of a time where you saw treating someone as a leader go right to the point where they might have transformed in some way? or seen themselves differently or approach something differently over the years? I won't give you a personal example for myself, but I'll tell you an example that I experienced that had a profound impact on me. Early in my career, when maybe I was a little bigger than my shoes actually were, how's that? One of the leaders in the organization made a mistake, and it cost us, at that time, maybe three and four million dollars. I was talking to the CEO, and I was going on and on about how this guy needed to be fired. You can't make that kind of mistake. And he says, Marvin, one day you're going to make a mistake. And you should hope that the person that you report to will be understanding of the mistake you made and give you an opportunity to correct it. After that, I had even more respect for that CEO at the time. And the person who had made the mistake he didn't lose his job, and he went on to be a great leader in the field that he was in, and I think principally because he was given another chance you know, to go on, wow. a chance that I wasn't willing to give him at that time and should have been. And so it has molded me to a great degree. So when I deal with folks, when people work for me, I give people second, third, and fourth chances to get it right because I know they're trying to get it right. Now, if they just can't do it, then we'll have to deal with that. But I am not quick to draw on that type of stuff anymore. I certainly was then. Wow. So how times have changed and evolved in seeing that moment that gave you pause and now how that impacts your leadership style. And in fact, seeing that person shine after having that pretty major mess up, I think is something we can all learn from that one moment doesn't define us or one choice. I guess it's a cliche. It's not how many times you get knocked down. It's how many times you get up. And you just have to keep pushing forward. You have to give people the opportunity and the room to make their own mistakes. They'll learn from them. As long as they don't keep repeating them, then the organization is actually better. You want people to feel like they can make a mistake and not lose everything. Yeah, totally. So now you guys are common spirit. You have had a huge merger. We are in a post-pandemic endemic state here. We're in a big workforce crisis. Like the world has changed. And for common spirit, it looks a little bit different too, as a, more than a little bit as an organization. Can you yeah. talk about what are those things that you're really excited about right now? So, you know, the world for us really has changed post-pandemic sitting in one of our offices here in San Francisco, where we used to have 50,000 square feet of office space, and now we've got 20,000, and it's never more than 10% occupied because folks want to work from home. The labor force has changed dramatically. There was this history professor, she was 
telling the origins of the Black Death and then the impacts that it had and how it went around and all the various theories about why it came in. But the thing that I noted that I've talked a lot about actually at work is it changed the economy of how work was done. They changed the power base from the landowners to the workers because supply and demand of workers changed because all the workers died. Now, the workers could demand higher wages and the work and the farm owners had to pay it if they wanted to get their farms cultivated. And plus, a lot of people left the countryside and moved into the city. So it changed. Of course, everyone talks about the led to the great renaissance and all of that. But the very nature of the economy that existed in Europe at that time changed as a result of the bubonic plague. Well, the same thing has happened as a result of COVID. We now have people working from home and they have no intention of coming back to the office. And if you say you have to work in the office, they'll just go find a job someplace else. And those jobs are available to them because so many people have decided maybe I've been working too hard. Then maybe I should be at home more and don't need to work as hard and I'll need all these jobs. That's a better life. I'll just change my lifestyle. So the economy of the workforce has changed dramatically for us here in healthcare. 100,000 nurses left through the pandemic. They're projecting another half a million nurses to leave the field over the next three or five years. We have MR techs, ultrasound techs, CT techs. 40% vacancies in those positions, you can't find them. This is something I learned early on in my career, is that a hospital is like a living body, it's an ecosystem. All the jobs relate to each other. So if job A doesn't get done, person over here and job D can't do their job. All these things are interrelated. There are no sort of independent kingdoms in healthcare. And so if I don't have MR techs, then I can't get procedures done. I can't get diagnostic procedures done. The doctors can't determine what's wrong with the patients. And then it just backs up. If I don't have OR techs, can't do surgery. Or if I don't at the rate that we want to do them. And the people just aren't out there. And so what's happening is you pay a whole lot more for that resource. It's a basic supply and demand elastic demand issue today. So, or elasticity of demand. As I see it, the answer is in technology. Now, the technology has to do two things for us. It has to allow our smaller group of employees to do a larger group of work, but do it easily and not just take on a double their workload. It also has to create a culture that appeals to today's folks coming out of college. Because most people coming out of college are technologically advanced. They're looking for places that are innovative and creative and are driving the technology. Hospitals are the last place where that really exists. Banks have done it. The auto industry has done it. I visited a plant in China that made screens for TVs and telephones. Not a single person on the work floor. Everything was driven by robots. Now they had this huge central station where technologists were working, directing the robots, but on the floor, there were no people. Hospitals have to go in that direction because we're just not going to have people. And so we're investing heavily in technology that's designed to enhance the people that we have here. So we can do 
remotely what it used to take to have a person there and want to do. I believe that will be appealing to a large group of people, but it's also creating new types of jobs that we didn't have before. So we can also reach into those communities we were talking about earlier and offer opportunities for people to start and then move their way up in the organization because we offer educational and all that kind of stuff to help people advance. I'm really excited about that in terms of what that future is going to look like. It's going to take a lot of technological investment, but I think that really for healthcare, that's really the answer because the people that we used to count on to do these jobs, they're not there. I think tech has never been more important and the gains that we're going to start to have as a result of these pressures, obviously having the pressures is really tough and creates a lot of challenge right now. It also creates a a fire for us to start leveraging more technologies, getting more creative and really looking at innovation in different ways. And the other thing that I love that you said was how you're looking at two pieces of this. You're looking at the tech aspect and the innovation aspect, but you're also looking at the culture aspect. And you have to have both because we're not talking about replacing all people with robots and then throwing away all culture and getting rid of human kindness altogether. Like your promise that you talked so much about, you're talking about an intersection between technology with culture as the underlying foundation of the human kindness aspect, which is going to propel relationships and just allow people to connect deeper and with more people, even when they're understaffed is what maybe what we used to consider that as we have more opportunities to leverage technology to fill some of the gaps, which I think is really exciting. I think it's a whole new world for us. I asked the question, if I can go to an airport and have them scan my eyes to be clear and get right up through security, why when they come to the hospital, I got to ask you the same questions I asked you the last time you were here. There are ways which we can, in fact, store that information Maybe you use some biometrics and you get right in. I think that's a beautiful vision. I actually had a note here about yeah. two stories that you told me about from working in the ER. One was about the person with the growth in his ear. And the yeah. other one was about the veteran who had firecrackers in his mailbox. Would you mind telling that story one more time when you're talking about working in the ER? Because I think that those stories are absolutely so impactful. And you talked about how that really created empathy for you in a different way and how that influences you? The first one, as I recall, one of the residents or someone was calling everyone over to look. And I was a kid. I went over to look and he was a resident, of course. I was with an individual there. I'm going to presume now in hindsight, this was a cancer scroll. And it was maybe four or five inches that spiraled out of this individual's ear. And I guess it must have had some sort of feature to it. And here's this poor individual sitting there where all of us standing around pointing and looking and gawking and whispering and giggling and making all these noises that young people do about this thing that's coming out of this guy's ear. And it occurred to me that maybe at the moment or certainly in retrospect, that this was just wrong. This showed no empathy for this individual no respect for his or her dignity. And this person doesn't know what's wrong with them. And they're probably scared. And we did nothing at that point that I can remember to comfort this individual. And we moved that forward to today. Hello, human kindness. I would say something like that would not happen in one of our hospitals. We would have more empathy than that. The other circumstance is Vietnam veteran 
living in a community really not that far from the hospital. I guess he was a neighborhood person that kids like to pick on because he was probably suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome and was an odd character to the kids. And so they decided to uh, put some firecrackers in his mailbox. And they go off, and he is transported back to Vietnam. And that Keem grabbed his gun and came outside and was eventually arrested and brought into our psyche there at the emergency room where the police related the story to us. I just looked at that circumstance. I just felt horribly bad. I didn't know what post-traumatic stress syndrome was at the time. I knew there was a war in Vietnam because everybody who was my age knew about the war in Vietnam. But it felt to me like he was an individual who the world has passed by. And how is this person ever going to be able to make it in life if he takes firecrackers or gunshots? Thank you. Thank you for that, Marvin. Those are so impactful. Marvin, when you look back on your career and you ask yourself, did I make the difference that I wanted to make? What's the thing that you want to be able to say that you made an impact in this way? The thing that really pops in my mind first is that there are a number of folks in the industry today that are leading hospitals or systems that used to work for me. I helped them get started. And they leave with the same kind of style that I have. And that includes two of my own kids have also gone into healthcare. Now, different branches of healthcare, but they're still in healthcare. I think that I've made a difference in terms of people who look like me saying that we can be healthcare executives. Our skin color doesn't have to be something that holds us back from these types of jobs. I would just encourage anyone listening that I think healthcare is a wonderful field. Uh, It has been good to me and my family, and you can certainly say that it, it is extremely rewarding to know that they're having a positive impact on people's lives frequently in circumstances that really are the lowest points in their lives. I'm Rebecca Corin. Thanks for listening to Moments Move Us. Remember, when you put people first, your actions can move others in unexpected ways. Be sure to follow wherever you get your audio.